Listen to God's word, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you may agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul baptized for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You may have noticed a problem in church. So Pastor Ray Orland offers you a plan to to fix it, to fix any church problem in just three weeks. Week one, walk into church and think about how long you've been a member how much you've sacrificed, how underappreciated you are. Then take note of, of everyone you're dissatisfied with, of every way you're dissatisfied with the church. Take note of all the new people here who, who are ruining things by, by changing it. Meet for coffee this week with another member and just share your heart. Discuss how much your church is changing, how you feel like you're being left out, you're, you're left on the side, and, and then ask your friend if, if he or she has any concerns to share with you. Agree that you're going to, this week, pray about it. Week two, send an email or or make some phone calls to a few other concerned members. Inform them that a groundswell of grievance is is changing changing things surfacing in the church, and so, so problems that have gone unaddressed for too long, they just have to be acknowledged. But ask them to, to for now, keep this quiet, you know, for the, for the sake of the, the body. As complaints come in, form them into a petition, demanding an accounting from the leaders of the church, and, and then circulate the petition quietly. At this point, you don't actually, even people that don't agree with your complaints, they'll sign your petition if you, if you just put it in the, in the terms of fairness. We deserve a hearing. We, we deserve to have our, our time. Now, week three, with this growing moral fervor, now it's ill-defined, but it's powerful, When it reaches critical mass, now confront the elders with your demands. Inform them of all the woundedness in the church, which leaves you with no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them that for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied. Pastor Ortland says, no matter what happens from here, you've won. Because you are going to bring about change in your church. You will have fixed the problems. Because in some degree, you'll get your way. It'll, because you've changed the, the conversation from the mission of the gospel to your own negativity, your own complaints. It may take the church years to recover from this plan, but at any future time, you can just do this again, remember? You see, it only takes three weeks to fix the church. 
The real possibility of conflict means that any church, even a church that's healthy, is only three weeks from disaster. Now, the church in Corinth is much further along. It's not just one person who's invoked this strategy. It's everyone playing the same game. Now, even if you're, you're new to faith church or you're new to church altogether, I mean, yes, what we're going to talk about today is, is conflict within the church, but, but hopefully you'll see the, the broader application to, to conflict in your life. But if, if you stick with us, you'll also see that what Paul ends up talking about is not just specific petty complaints within a congregation, but he really ends up talking about what is the church and who is Jesus. And so even if your concern isn't about faith church, listen for those bigger questions. Because the conflict within the church distorts the mission of the church. It ignores the gospel. Look at how Paul begins this appeal, because really what, what we're doing now is turning from the introduction of this letter to the main body of the letter. In, in verse 11, we, we see that, that reports have come from Chloe's household. Now, what Paul will do later in the letter is he'll answer direct questions the church has asked. But before he even gets to that, he says, but I've got a few other things we need to talk about first. Reports that I've heard about the way things are taking place in the church. And so Paul now turns his attention to what's a significant issue, and we'll, we'll really cover these opening chapters. Conflict in the church in Corinth. And so in verse 10 we read, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you. It's, it's, it's not a command to just be blindly followed. It's, it's the heartfelt longing, the plea. This is what you need to do. You need to act you need to respond. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and in thought. See, the church is filled with conflict, with divisions. And so Paul is calling them to unity. In verse 12, he says, this is what I mean. And he, and he sort of takes slogans that he, that he hears reported to them. That this, is, this is how you are talking. In verse 12, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Now, those first three names are names that are familiar to us from, from New Testament history. Paul is the one writing the letter. He's the one who planted this church. He was the, the founding pastor of this church. He spent a year and a half ministering with them in Corinth. He was their primary evangelist and teacher. And yet you can see the, the way he says it. He's, he never wanted anyone to say that. I follow Paul. Apollos is a, a, a fellow worker who came alongside and, and served in the, the church. Apollos is a, a teacher who came. And then Cephas is also known to us more commonly in the New Testament as Peter. Peter, the, one of the, the original disciples, one of the, the inner circle, perhaps came and taught here, or, or maybe it's just they know of his teachings from the, ch the broader church. And then even the, the phrase, I follow Christ, you might think, well, that's, that's actually, isn't that a good slogan? I mean, can't we print that on a t-shirt and, and sell it? But, but you see in the context here, it's, it's, it's someone claiming the name of Christ for them for their own selfish purposes, as if 
well, I mean, some of you follow Paul and some Apollos and, and some Cephas, but I, I mean, I follow Christ. I mean, they're almost sort of setting themselves up, and, and the context of the rest of the book sort of makes us think that, that maybe that people like this, they're saying, well, but I'm the really spiritual type. I mean, I'm the kind that has those really great and magnificent and beautiful showy gifts that you can all see how wonderful I am. I follow Christ. And see, they're not actually saying it in a, in a meaningful, spiritual way. Now, it, it might be that we, we might initially think that there's sort of like four campaigns going on, and everybody's got their I follow Paul buttons and I follow Cephas buttons, but it's, it's, it's much more ill-defined than that. It's not, it's not sort of that there are these different theological camps and theological parties, and, everybody, and everybody's kind of taken sides, and you could go through the church list and like, yep, he's a Paul, he's, a, he's an Apollos. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's more ill-defined. And partly we, we get that from the, the, the individual language. It's not we follow Paul, but I follow Paul. So it's this individual response. But also the rest of the letter uh, doesn't, dis, doesn't say, okay, now we need to talk about the, the Apollos group. Here's the errors I need to correct. Because John Calvin, a, a a pastor of, of a previous generation, he says the real issue is this partisanship spirit, this, just the, the conflict that has grown up within the church. Because, Calvin points out to us, if you read some of Paul's other letters where the main issue is theology, he dives right in and says, this is where your teaching is wrong. Let me correct your false teaching. But what does Paul do here in Corinth? He, he doesn't so much go at their theology as their, as their action, as their behavior, as their selfishness. Because Corinth is a city in the ancient world that, that sounds very modern in the sense that, that it was a culture obsessed with status, with power, with privilege. And so people are positioning themselves to say, you know, I think we've got, we've got the truth. And they're, they're kind of following then these, these leaders and, and saying, but that's, that's who I identify with. Now, admittedly, it's, it's hard to, to understand exactly what's going on, the, the people receiving the letter had no confusion over what Paul was pinning them down on or pointing out to them. I mean, this is actually something they tried to keep hidden from Paul. Even when they wrote a letter saying, hey, we've got problems, we need some help, they leave this part out. It comes in a report, we're told, from, from Chloe's household, who have now traveled from, from Greece to Asia to bring this report to the apostle. But perhaps the, the vagueness of the, 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 we don't know all the specifics here can be helpful to us. Because what Paul is more broadly doing is applying it to conflict in general, to selfishness, to this partisanship thinking. And he addresses the root problem, not just the specific details. See, our details may be different, but conflict within a church is always lingering just under the surface in our attitudes. When we think things like others, they're just not as serious as I am. Nobody else around here works as hard as I do in ministry. I just can't handle the music that that other service forces down our throat. The church is changing too much. Things aren't the way I remember them. I don't get the same kind of care that I used to get. All those other ministries, they're sucking the life and the volunteers out of my ministry. Well, I really like Pastor So-and-so. He's nicer, smarter, gentler, just better. 
than those other pastors. Do you see, most of the time these complaints, these concerns grow out of our serious commitment to the church. Paul's not not at this point talking about the the pressures we feel from a a culture that doesn't believe the gospel. He's not, he'll, he'll talk about some of that later on in this letter. Right now he's talking about the complaints that come from those of us that are most serious about church. When we start to say, things should be done my way, all the time, every way, what, what I do, the way I do it, that's the only way. See, the conflict in the church in Corinth was conflict coming within. But Paul is pointing out to them in this passage that, that their, their conflict is absurd. Notice the questions he asks them in verse 13. They've got these great slogans, I follow Christ. And then he asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Those are pretty harsh questions. So that even those, of, those claiming the name of Christ are, are dividing themselves from the rest of the church. Can you do that? Can you claim Christ while dividing yourself from, from the rest of the church for whom Christ died? Can you claim the name of Paul? Yes, the founder of the church, your first pastor. You can keep my portrait in the hallway if you'd like but don't claim me as the one in whose name you were baptized. And then Paul actually points out that, well, I didn't, thankfully didn't baptize many of you. So those of you that can claim like, no, no, I'm really, really with Paul, well, that's going to be a small group. Because the conflict here is, is centered on, on personalities and preferences. But, but it seems clear that, that neither neither Apollos nor, nor Peter can be blamed for this. It's not as if they came and, and stirred up dissension, because in chapter 3, Paul, when speaking about Apollos, will describe him as, as a, a fellow worker. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 6, I planted the seed of the gospel, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And he says that, that we are God's fellow workers. So there's no conflict between Paul or Peter here. It's, it's people wrongly using their names and their personalities. They're trusting in a leader who cannot save them. And that's where Paul's question shows the absurdity of this kind of conflict. Was Paul crucified for you? See, our hope doesn't rest in the eloquence of the preacher, the slickness of the programs, or the number of people in the room. Our hope is in the crucifixion. So Paul is saying to them, and actually, historically, I'm glad that when I ministered to you, I didn't do most of the baptisms. There were other pastors and elders who did that. I mean, he says, look at, look at verse 14, I'm thankful that I did not baptize you any except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can, can say that you were baptized into my name. Now, Paul isn't saying baptism is unimportant. He's just saying, you're, you're misusing your baptism by saying, look, I was baptized by Paul. Who baptized you? Oh, yeah, not Paul. Because baptism is important. Uh, uh, Chrysostom, a a preacher of the the early church, he says, baptism, in in commenting on this passage, baptism truly is a great thing. But its greatness is not the work of the person baptizing, but of him who is invoked in the baptism. It was a, a privilege to baptize little Joshua today. But he is blessed not because I held him in my arms, but because Jesus holds him in his arms. Because Jesus was crucified for him. See, our hope rests in the work of Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul is thankful, not because baptism is unimportant, but just saying, I'm thankful I didn't baptize many of you. And then verse 16 actually kind of jumps out at us like, as if Paul is interrupted. He's probably dictating the letter orally and has a scribe who's writing it down. And, and he's reminded that, that, oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Now, we actually know from the very end of the book that Stephanus is with him. He's, he's there while Paul writes this letter in chapter 16, uh, verses 15 through 18. We're told that, that Stephanus is, is there. He, Paul was encouraged. And so it's almost as if Paul is dictating this and Stephanus pipes up from the other side of the room. Hey, Paul, me and my family too, we were on that list. Which, which seems like this his, just sort of interesting historical point, but, it, but maybe it makes you think of a, of a deeper question. If Paul can't even remember who he baptized, why would we even listen to him? Like, if he can't keep that little detail straight, why would we trust him on the big details like this is what the gospel is? I mean, maybe this is, you're thinking to yourself, ah, oh, here we go. And this is just another one of those pieces of evidence where it shows that, you know, the Bible is just written by by a bunch of guys who are just kind of bumbling along, figuring it out as they go. But, but, but think about it. The, the doctrine of inspiration, when we as a church say we believe this is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, it means that when Paul speaks, he speaks without error. But it doesn't make him omniscient. Inspiration means that, he, that, that, that his words are inerrant, He's infallible in what he speaks, but he's still human. See, what Paul is telling us is, the only reason you should listen to me is not because I'm this grand and glorious theologian. And Paul is the greatest theologian the church has ever known. But he says, you don't need to listen to me because I'm a great theologian, or I'm a bold missionary, or I'm a a pastor who's willing to tackle hard issues. He says, you need to listen to me because God is speaking and telling me what to say to you. And so when Paul admits, oh, that's right. Yeah, Stephanus, thanks. Thanks for reminding me. I also baptized Stephanus and his family. It doesn't mean we don't trust in Paul. We actually, we can trust that God is going to work in real historical circumstances, in the lives of real people, Crispus and Gaius, whose names are, are hinted at for us in the book of Acts, in the life of Stephanus and his family. Paul is showing us that conflict is absurd. It's silly, it's foolish, because it calls into question the purpose and nature of the church. It distorts our real hope in the gospel. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Again, Paul's not not denigrating baptism, but he's saying, Baptism always comes second in the priority of the church because you can't be baptized unless you have heard the word of God and believed. And so what does the church first need to do? Go preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and then invite people to respond in faith, to receive the the picture of God's grace in the waters of baptism. Paul is saying the purpose of the church is to preach the gospel. But conflict... Conflict prevents the church from doing that. Because all people are doing here is they're arguing, but I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. I'm with Peter. Rather than going out into the Corinthian community and saying, will you turn and follow Christ? Will you hear the message of the gospel? You see, conflict always turns us away from what God has called us to do to preach 
the gospel, because we spend our, our nights worried about what's going wrong rather than praying for our friends and neighbors and family members to respond to the gospel. We spend our time plotting our, to, so that we don't get pushed out rather than going out and making the gospel known. See, conflict, it distorts the purpose of the church. And Paul, in his appeal, back in verse 10, we, we read, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. His appeal is in the name of the Lord, the one who has all authority and power, the Lord Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God sent to be the king and rescuer of his people. And if you go back today and, and reread verses 1 through 10, because when we go through a sermon series, we kind of break up passages for you. But the church in Corinth would have heard this all at once, read out loud to them when, when the letter arrived. And in the first 10 verses of this book, the name of Jesus Christ is used 10 times. So that by the time you get to people saying, I follow Paul, it sounds foolish. How can you follow Paul when the Lord is Jesus Christ? It's because conflict distorts the message of the church. The person of Christ, Christ, the Messiah, the rescuer. And so Paul says, I was sent to preach, to preach the gospel, not with, not with words of, of human wisdom. And well, actually, in the, 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 the chapters, is, as chapter 1 continues into chapter 2, that's, that's what Paul will turn his attention to. What is the, the wisdom of the world, and, and how does the gospel contrast with that? But, but what Paul is saying is, is it's not the, the eloquence that I bring and actually, Paul admits that he's, he's not the, the, the strongest preacher. He doesn't preach like the, the Greek philosophers teach, with eloquence and beauty, with, with words that roll off their tongues and, and capture the, the attention. And he says, but I'm preaching to you with the power of the gospel. See, because conflict, conflict turns us from the, the cross and turns us in on ourselves. What do I want from church? What should church give to me? What do I deserve when I show up here? Do you see what Paul does? Is he, he says, no, 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 I was sent to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, our real hope in the midst of conflict isn't that we win, that we change the circumstances, that we get our way, that we sort of keep the, the dissenters quiet. No, our real hope in the midst of conflict is the cross of Christ. This is the reconciling grace that we need. Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Lord. Crucified. Now that sounds like a terrible way to win an argument. It doesn't actually sound like victory at all to be crucified. So you listening know what a shameful death that is. If you grew up in the, the synagogue, you know that the one who is hanged on a cross is shamed, dishonored. It's a horrific way to die. And if you grew up in, in Corinth under the, the imperial authority of Rome, then you know that's a, a tremendously horrible way to die that's reserved for the worst of criminals. And a Roman citizen, so you can't do that to me. But Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
shows us his power on the cross. Because you see what he does when, when he faces conflict? Disciples who, who turn against him, disciples who betray him, he puts himself in the place of the cowards and the sinners and the liars. He selflessly goes to the cross for those who, who when they get into the church, will, will gather up whatever they can for themselves. And so do you see that, that when Paul points us to the cross of Christ, he's actually, he's actually dealing directly with this problem of, of selfishness and conflict. Because if Jesus would do that for you, well, then what, what can't he ask of you? If Jesus, would, if Jesus died for the church, if Jesus died even for those Apollos people and those Peter people, well, then what kind of love and respect and care should you show to them? See, so the solution to conflict is not that I care less about what's happening, because that's one of the ways you can deal with conflict in the church. Just come around less. Don't get involved as much. Let those crazy people deal with it. But, but that's no solution at all. The solution to conflict is not that I care less about the church, but I begin to align my priorities with the priorities of Jesus. Instead of seeing my sacrifice for the church in comparison to someone else, I see it in comparison to the sacrifice of Jesus. Instead of placing my preferences at the top of the list, I look to Jesus who placed the glory and purposes of God above his own and gave up everything. Instead of worrying about how well ministries align with my plans, I begin to see how the glorious mission of the church is to make this gospel known. See, it's the power of the cross that gives us hope. When we handle conflict by going to Jesus, then we are humbled so that we can love and serve those around us, that we can, that we can be reminded the church is not about me getting my way. The church is about Jesus having his way in my life and in his kingdom through this church. When we submit ourselves to his authority, then we see his power, the power of Jesus, the one who died for us. When we find forgiveness at the cross, then we can be united as a church.